The eruption of war in Ukraine has left millions of civilians displaced and lacking basic necessities. Many humanitarian organizations have tried to help, and today we're talking with Dr. Michael Schiffman, who's the executive director of Hevra, which has spent the last 29 years feeding the hungry in Ukraine and the rest of the former Soviet Union. Messiah Podcast is brought to you by First Fruits of Zion, providing Messianic Jewish teaching for Christians and Jews. Put your hand and mind together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the rabbi from the Galilee. Welcome to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. I am Damian Eisner here with my co-host, Jacob Franzak. Howdy, What's Jacob. What's up, Damian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, uh, I'm feeling good. I just got back from vacation. Excited to be back on the podcast with you. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm I'm about to go on vacation, so oh, I'm fantastic! Still excited to be on the. You're podcast gonna get out you, of. You're gonna get out of Georgia. I am going to get out of Georgia, but then I'll be. Nice. Um, I'm I'm actually leaving on a midnight train to Georgia to come home just so that I could oh. sing that song while I did it. Yeah, you have to now. No, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> so, Doctor Michael Schiffman, do you know Doctor Schiffman? Have you met him? Are you are you familiar with him? Yeah, I met Dr. Schiffman at a First Fruit Design Shavuot conference uh-huh. um, the better part of a decade ago. And um, I love this guy. He's he's so knowledgeable. I mean, he's obviously a doctor, um, but he, he's been so many places and done so many things. He's got so many stories um, and so much experience. I mean, as an observant Jewish person and as a, as a follower of Yeshua, he's just... Um, really a rich a rich well to draw from, almost no matter what you want to talk about. Very much a pioneer within Messianic Judaism for those of you who are not familiar with him. He is, he is a, a long-standing uh, pillar of the Messianic Jewish world. And as we'll talk and learn about today, has very, very strong and deep connections in Ukraine, which certainly is a pretty heavy and uh, popular topic these days. His organization, Hevra, which he's going to talk to us about today, has been providing aid, food to the Jewish people. All, well, not just food, all kinds of aid to the Jewish people in um Russia, former Russia, former Soviet Union, I should say. And just it's it's really an amazing story of the the um, power of doing as a representative disciple of Yeshua. Would you agree yeah. with with that? Yeah, this is somebody who has who is walking the walk in a way that most of us um, could only dream. And um, you know what he's what he's doing is certainly worth supporting. And we'll talk about how to support Hevra, um, this humanitarian organization a little bit later in the podcast. But um, just to, 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 to stop talking about it and to get down on your hands and knees and help the people who need helping, is, is his, his whole life has been an inspiration in that respect. It is inspiring and, uh, and humbling and hopefully learning some of what they're doing will also motivate all of us to do our part, whether it's helping them or just getting our getting our hands dirty, so to speak, in, in the best kind of way. So let's jump directly in and talk with Dr. Schiffman. If you want to know the Jewish Jesus, Don't miss out on a free subscription to Messiah Magazine, where you'll discover his life and teaching, learn about the biblical festivals, and get connected with Israel. Subscribe for free at messiahmagazine.org. Messiah Magazine is a free, donation-supported quarterly publication of First Fruits of Zion. We are happy to welcome Dr. Michael Schiffman. Welcome, Dr. Schiffman, to Messiah Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. 
Glad to have you. So I'm going to I'm going to jump right in here with first off something pretty important. Not everyone on our podcast may know who Dr. Michael Schiffman is. Uh, we do. You are a very, very uh, longstanding friend of First Roots Design. As a matter of fact, all of the guys on our staff have a great level of respect for you. You've been a part of walking First Roots of Zion through some some maturation through the years. So you you are a friend to us, but now we want you to be a friend to everyone on the podcast. So you've been around uh, Messianic Judaism a long, long time, long time. Uh, so I just would love it if you would tell us how you got here. Who is Dr. Schiffman? Okay. Um, who is Dr. Schiffman depends on who you ask. If you ask my mother when she was alive, I was I was practically the Messiah. But um, <laughs> Michael Schiffman is a is a Yeshua follower. Um, I have been following him since I was eighteen years old, hmm. um, and that is forty nine years ago. Uh, it was about that time. I came into the Messianic movement, which was in its infancy at that time. Yeah. Um, the, the vision of it has, has changed over the years. Uh, when I came in, it was the vision of Messianic Judaism was a place where Jewish people who followed Yeshua could live Jewish lives, raise their children as Jews, and follow Yeshua. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was very Jewish in its orientation. Um, somewhere about the early 90s, uh, you had uh, a lot of congregations springing up, um, and they were compri comprised of both Jews and non-Jews. So it went from being, uh, for the most part, a Jewish affair uh, to uh, something that had Jews and non-Jews. And the motto became a place where Jew and Gentile can worship together. No problem with that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it went a little off center of the, uh, of the Jewish identity uh, because you add an ingredient to soup. It changes the taste a little. Sometimes it makes it better. Um, yeah. The uh, the movement's kind of moved even now. Uh, sure. There's a lot of talk about this, uh, the idea of the one new man. Mm -hmm. um, I have some problems with the concept, mainly because the one new man is almost never a Jewish man. Mm. And you kind of lose... Uh, the Jewish identity of Messianic Judaism that way. So uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm a bit uncomfortable with it at this point. Uh, but the movement has grown a lot since uh, I came into it. Uh, I believe that we are uh, endeavoring to lift up Yeshua in a Jewish way. And those are positive things. Those are good things. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it becomes a place where people who have been led into this particular walk have a place to go. Mm. And and there are a lot of those people who have been led into this, this way of walking, so to speak. Um, and I mean, you know, you know, our our position. We have created a number of names through the years for our theological positions, but have kind of settled at First Roots of Zion on this idea of distinction theology, which does respect the unique identity of the so-called one new man. Uh, we, we absolutely, many, many of our listeners, many of the, of the partners of First Roots of Zion, you know, are, are Gentiles, but but we've labored hard uh, also under your guidance in some of these areas to create that space that is healthy for both, for Jew and Gentile. And I thank God for it, uh, for, the, for your position uh, and for the distinctions. And 
And the fact that we, in a very real way, with the distinctions, we're able to worship together and walk more than just worship, walk together in Yeshua. Yeah, yeah. Well, we wanted to pick your brain on some current events. So if we can switch tracks just a little bit. In, uh, in February of this year, we had uh, a major conflict erupting in Ukraine. And we know that you've been over there and you've, you're, through your ministry, Hevra, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, um, you've done a lot of work over there. But just to sort of set the stage, give people a little context, this conflict seems to, uh, you know, nothing stays in the headlines here that long. Some, the, the, our attention span seems to be fairly short, but this is still going on in Ukraine. Um, what's your perspective on what's going on in Ukraine right now? What is, what's Putin up to over there? What's, what are the stakes? Um, what's happening on the ground? Well, this is just conjecture on my part. But it appears to me that Putin would like to just take over all of Ukraine. And he thought it would be easy to do. He wasn't anticipating uh, the level of Ukrainian resistance. And uh, you had a lot, a lot of the Russian people were, were in the dark about this. Uh, they didn't know what's going on. They're being fed different stories by the Russian news service. They're saying Ukraine is run by Nazis. Uh, and when you consider that the president of Ukraine is Jewish, um, it kind of puts that, uh, puts that to rest. But, but that's, that's part of the rhetoric he's giving. And the idea is he wants to restore the Russian empire whether under the Soviet or, or under the czars. He, he wants to restore the, the Russian Empire. And I believe he would like to get all of the republics back. He attacked uh, uh, Georgia uh, or Brusia, which uh, has, is rich in oil reserves. Uh, he's, uh, they say he's eyeing Moldova, which is between Ukraine and uh, Romania, uh, he, he, they basically bonded with uh, Belarus uh, and the Baltic states as well. They're looking to take over. Mm. And it's kind of a frightening thing when you consider they do have a, much more uh, firepower. Um, I'm glad the American government has been standing with Ukraine. However, itself... We, we don't take political sides. I mean, we grieve when things like this happen. But, you know, we used to operate a lot of soup kitchens in Russia, too. Hmm. Uh, and so we care about the people there as well as the people in Ukraine. Hmm. You, you mentioned the, the, the Nazi component, a word, obviously, with just uh, unmatched emotional um, firepower when when used in headlines and by politicians um Zelensky certainly you know on the one side he's portrayed as a as this major hero and then in other there are mixed reviews about his motivations and that uh Russia's saying that they're fighting the Nazis in Ukraine. Some sources in America say that Zelensky has brought these neo-Nazis and armed Nazis. I mean, what in the world is going on there with, uh, you know, Ukrainian politics? Is Zelensky a good, I know he's Jewish, that doesn't necessarily always mean that they're good, but wh what do you know? What do you think? It creates a great irony. Yeah. To, yeah. to claim that a Jewish president is a Nazi, <laughs> which he certainly isn't. Right. Uh, but, you know, I've been working in Ukraine personally uh, for 29 years, since mm. uh, 1993, uh, right after the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, and I've gotten to see them in their worst circumstances and how they have been uh, coming up. Uh, they uh, have improved a lot. They, through their ties with the West, uh, their economic situation improved greatly. 
Uh, and then to see it all uh, blown, just blown up and destroyed. Uh, when the war started, the news was showing uh, pictures of every city that was getting bombed. And we had soup kitchens in all of those cities. I've personally been to most of those cities, 35 cities in Ukraine. We were feeding 1,400 people, mostly elderly and women and children. And uh, to see these places destroyed, uh, the people being bombed indiscriminately, uh, yeah. it, it, it's very hard to take. It's very hard to even see it. Uh, we have been on the phone with our friends there uh, with, an, with an interpreter, but uh, we, uh, you know, we, we'd be talking to them and say, we have to go, we have to run to the basement because shells are exploding. Sounds like Israel. That's horrifying. No, in this in this day and age, this kind of a war should never be. Yeah. Well, so there's a lot that is unsettled. That's for sure. At this point, it's it's hard to know where anything is headed. And I guess we could say that we could say that about a lot of topics of conversation these days. Yeah. Let Let me just add one thing. Um, if uh, it could be taken as a as a harbinger of things to come. Uh, when Russia attacked and took over uh, the, the Crimea, it's called Krim in Russia, it was part of Ukraine. And we had operated three soup kitchens there. And then after the Russians attacked, we were unable to operate any soup kitchens there. Uh, I had been there several times myself. Um, it was kind of like the Miami of, of, of Ukraine, although it was no Miami. But uh, the weather was more temperate. Uh, people had a more relaxed attitude. The Russians do not want to accept humanitarian aid from the West because it makes them look bad. They don't want to admit that they need help. But what we heard from people was that once they took over, the people were getting less, and uh, and and they and they were accepting no help from outside of Crimea or Russia. Uh, and my concern is that should uh, should Russia succeed and take over Ukraine. Uh, we'd be unable to help the people because the people who are perpetrating this war do not care about the people. Well, you're, um, when we'll get to, again to the details of Hevra uh, very soon, but just again to set the stage, um, there's a lot of Jewish history in Ukraine that people uh, might not be aware of. Even uh, I was even surprised just doing research for this interview because I had heard, oh, you know, the Baal Shem Tov was uh, born in Poland and Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Nachman was born in Poland. Uh, but that was Poland, you know, hundreds of years ago. These places are, are all part of Ukraine now. So you know, the Baal Shem Tov, was, uh, his life was spent in Ukraine and, and Rabbi Nachman was born and died in, U in Ukraine. He was his, uh, his grave in Uman. Uh, many Jews go to that uh, place to pray every year. Um, so there's a lot of heritage there. What's what's it like to be Jewish in Ukraine today? I mean, we hear we know Zelensky is Jewish, but we also know that um, Hevra is needed over there to feed uh, Jews that are in incredible poverty. Um, what's the spectrum of the Jewish experience there? And is are these claims of of anti-Semitism in Ukraine? Um, is there anything behind those? What's it like to be Jewish in Ukraine? Okay. Without a doubt, there is a lot of anti-Semitism still in Ukraine. Uh, but things have improved to some extent. Hmm. A friend of mine said that he was in Ukraine and he was wearing a kippah, a yarmulke, and he had Ukrainians coming up and they hugged him. Uh, that was unusual. Uh, 
in the past you could be uh, attacked, you'd be beaten up for it. You have to realize a lot happened in, in this area. Um, almost every city, especially in Western Ukraine, has places, not memorials, but killing sites where mm. Jews were murdered by the Nazis. Uh, I was in a small town, well, a small city. There were these huge burial mounds. There were 30,000 Jewish people buried there in a mass grave. Wow. And that was one place. Uh, when I would go visit a place, they would take me out and show me here in the woods. They took all the Jewish teenagers and said, we have work for you. And they took them out and shot them all. Hmm. Uh, they showed me another place. This is where they gathered the Jewish community. And the first thing they did was shoot all the rabbis and all the scholars. Um, wow. This is uh, this, this was a part of the world that had uh, a lot of Jewish people, kind of like the United States today. Hmm. Uh, but you have to realize Ukraine, part, the western part of Ukraine used to be part of Poland. In fact, the cities of, um, uh, well, Lvov or Lviv was actually part of Poland before World War II. It went by the name of Lemberg, hmm. uh, but they changed it, and later on it changed hands. Uh, it was half of a province called Galicia. Right. Uh, if you've heard of some Jews called Galicianers, hmm. uh, these were the Jews from that region, and half of Galicia is in Poland. Uh, it includes Krakow, uh, Poland, and uh, Przemysl, Poland. And on the other side of the border, you have Lvov. Uh, and these were Polish cities. Yeah. Uh, but later, they became part of Ukraine. And yes, it is the birthplace of the Hasidic movement. Um, but there were a lot more Jews than just Hasidim there. Right. Uh, and today, um, I would say the Jewish community is not all that different from the Jewish community in America. Hmm. You have a lot of secular Jews, a lot of Jews who don't believe in God or they're agnostic. Hmm. Uh, you have some who are very religious, uh, you know, partially through the work of Chabad, and they've done a very good job of uh, reaching out to people and trying to restore uh, Jewish religion, faith, and culture. Yeah. So you have that, you have secular Jews, you have a lot of intermarriage, just like in America, okay. where Jews intermarry with non-Jews. So you've been there a lot. I've logged over a million travel miles with United Airlines uh, going there. Wow. Oh, it's good. They treat you nice. But uh, those are all trips to Ukraine. Torah Club is the world's fastest-growing Messianic Jewish Bible study. You can start or join a club today at TorahClub.org. Know Jesus better through an in-depth small group Bible study and fellowship with other like-minded disciples. Start a club or join a club at TorahClub.org. Torah Club is where disciples learn. Hevra is a humanitarian organization. Uh, we primarily focus on helping Jewish people, but it's not exclusive to the point that we wouldn't help someone who isn't Jewish. If somebody's in need, we're, we're not, we're not going to withhold food from them. Um, but usually in places like Ukraine, the Jews are the lowest on the totem pole. They're the last ones to get help. So we focus on helping them. Uh, we uh, work in conjunction with some of the Jewish organizations there. We work hand in hand if they're doing a soup kitchen and maybe they could afford to do two days a week, we'll pick up three days a week. And so the people can eat every day. Uh, our goal is simply to help. Uh, if you wanna put it in religious terms, 
instead of being the mouth of God, we want to be the hands of God, yeah. the hands that bless people and meet people's needs. Okay. Why Ukraine? I mean, what, what, what about Eastern Europe? What, what started you there? Why was that your focus? There are Jews all over the world in need. What brought you there? That became uh, the greatest opportunity. Uh, we used to, okay, prior to Putin, we used to work in Russia, feeding a lot of people. We worked in uh, Belarus. Uh, we worked, of course, in Ukraine, but we also worked in Moldova, and we still work in Moldova. Uh, we worked in Azerbaijan, uh, which is more like um, Central Asia. Uh, but we were uh, working in all of these republics uh, because, because of opportunity. Uh, but we worked mostly in Ukraine, first of all, because they had the largest population of Jewish people. And secondly, we had uh, the government of Ukraine was willing to not only open doors for us, but cooperate. At one point when you had to get visas, I got a three-year visa from the government, from um, the uh, Director of Humanitarian Affairs. Um, and uh, uh, we, we had a lot of cooperation. And so that's why we chose Ukraine. Got it. So operating, um, operating a charity, uh, especially like a humanitarian charity, as a religious person, you know, people hear stories about uh, a charity that's like, oh, you can have you can have a meal as long as you sit through our Bible study or whatever, and people can be cynical about uh, attaching religious aims to to charitable giving. How does Hevra navigate this sort of minefield uh, when it comes to to religious humanitarian giving? Okay, if somebody is hungry and needs our help. Because if it weren't for us, they wouldn't eat. Mm. They would die. We help them. We do not ask them to take a religious test. They don't have to listen to a sermon. They don't have to receive any literature. And the reason is, first of all, uh, just because somebody is hungry does not mean they're stupid. Mm. And they, they know that you're trying to buy them buy their souls for a loaf of bread. Mm. And it's unconvincing to them. Uh, so we help them out of love and out of concern and not out of an attempt uh, to proselytize. Uh, because those, they, first of all, people see through it. Secondly, uh, it doesn't speak of love if you're trying to bargain Love means helping people. You know, Yeshua would heal uh, 10 people and only one came back, the lepers uh, or the blind men. Uh, only one came back. He didn't take away the healing of the other ones. And he didn't ask them to hear a sermon. They simply had a need and he helped. And we're trying to follow that same idea. That's fantastic, man. I'm glad to hear it. He has some, speaking of Yeshua, he has some pretty powerful words about uh, feeding and giving drinks, sheeps and goats and different things like that, you know. Well, the, <laughs> the interesting thing about it, yes, exactly. The parable of the sheep and the goats speaks directly to it. Yep. I was hungry and you fed me. Now I was hungry <laughs> and you preached a sermon to me. Hmm. But, uh, but by the same right, even though we don't, push uh, religion on people, uh, people come up to us, a, a lot of them, and they say, "How? what is it that you believe? And we've even said, look, we're just here to feed you. Yeah, but who do you represent? Why are you feeding us? Just because you're hungry. But event eventually we say, look, if you want to come to a study, we're having a study on Tuesday nights, and people come, uh, but not because we make it a requirement or a prerequisite. Hmm. 
it comes naturally because we've shown love without uh, love without uh, strings attached. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. It's so interesting to think that, you know, that's that in so many ways, that was the approach. That was Yeshua's approach. I'm going to, I'm going to help you and I'm, I'm just going to help you. You know, I, I, I'm going to heal you. We're going to feed all these people, you know, we're just going to help. And it's strange that in this world, it, it people ask, why are you doing this? I mean, people don't do this. What makes you different? That's, that's a powerful thing to be able to say, ultimately it's the goodness of God within me. It's being a disciple of Yeshua. You know, this is really the message of the Torah. Yeah. If you look at the Torah and the way it instructs people on how to live, the Torah teaches that we're supposed to help people. We're supposed to help the weakest among us. We're supposed to provide for the poor. That was the goal of the Torah, because I believe God delights in us helping one another. And uh, that's why he made laws for the rich and for the poor. Mm. Uh, and I believe we are closer to God when we're helping one another. People get tired of our sanctimonious words. Yeah. And, you know, I, I see it on Facebook. People are always, you know, you say you're sick and people say, oh, oh we're praying for you. You're in our prayers. And people are saying, look, prayers are great, but it's not helping. I need your help. If somebody's hungry, they need food. Hmm. And, and if somebody hasn't eaten in three or four days, what makes someone think they're going to listen to your sermon when all they can think about is I haven't eaten in three or four days? Yeah. Book of James. Yeah. And the New Testament makes it the New Testament makes it so clear. Yeah, the Gospel of Luke, Book of James, um, it's just in Matthew the sheep and goat judgment, so unambiguous. But even like even just from a purely Jewish perspective, I heard I heard an Orthodox rabbi say once, um, based on the the Psalms that say that God is with the widow and the orphan, um, that God is always there with someone who's oppressed. God is always there with the needy, whether no matter what they believe, even if they're wrong about everything, God is still there with the oppressed, always. Yeah. You know, I don't have it memorized, but a verse that really applies is Proverbs 24, 11 and 12. You want to look it up and read it. It's, it's very powerful for this, especially the situation today in Ukraine. Hmm. I've got to rescue those being led away to death, hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? Yeah. It's a good one. In times, especially in times like this, God expects us to help to do something. That's what it means to be his disciples. Mm -hmm. If we're not doing anything, we're not properly representing him. Yeah, to say the least. The fact is, uh, I look at Hevra and the fact that we've been doing this for 29 years. And uh, I have to say that I believe that everything we've done up to now was for this time. To prepare us for this time. In twenty nine years, uh, share share a memorable story or two, something that that stands at the top of your list of, you know, things that just affected your life from that point forward. I'm sure there's a long list. It's kind of a question putting you on the spot, but there's a very long list. Um, I was in a city called Drahovich. Mm -hmm. It's in Western Ukraine. We were having a party because it was uh, Purim. And we, and we made a, a party for all the people we were helping. And there was an old lady there. Her name was Rita. And she asked me to come over to her. And I came over and I, we were talking through an interpreter, of course. And I said, 
what can I do for you? And she said, I want to express gratitude. Now, when you're feeding hungry people, you never want to humiliate them by calling attention to their need. So I just said, oh, you don't have to thank me. It's my job. Uh, I don't want them to feel beholding to me. And then she grabbed my hand tighter and she said, you don't understand. She said, before, before the communists ended, I was the chief physician for this region. And now I'm living on $40 a month. If it weren't for the soup kitchen, I would be dead. And all the people you see in this soup kitchen, they would be dead. And we all want you to know that we are grateful. Well, what do you say to something like that? That's ah, nothing. No. I, I grabbed her arm this time. And I said, I want you to know, first of all, this isn't from me. It's from friends in America. And secondly, I want you to know that a woman such as yourself should never have been in this situation. And we are humbled and grateful to be able to help you. But that deeply affected my life. First, because it's life and death. People would die if we didn't feed them. And secondly, we represent, without pushing it, we represent God to them. This is God's love reaching them. And, and that's, why, that's why I feel people should give to Hevra or groups like Hevra, but mostly <laughs> Hevra, uh, mainly because, you know, living in America, we have it pretty good. Yeah. Hmm. Even the poorest among us. We have it pretty good by comparison, by what I've seen. And I'm not trying to make us feel guilty, but I want to highlight the idea that we don't often have the opportunity to help people, to bless people, to bless Jewish people. Uh, Jewish people here don't need your charity. They don't need your help. But over there, they do. And this may be the opportunity God is giving people to make a life and death difference. And that's why it's so important. It is. You'll get, you know, um, give our listeners a sense of the scope of, what's, of what Hever is able to do over there. We've, you've talked about dozens of cities. Um, you know, throw a couple numbers at us. What, uh, how, how big is this, is this operation? Okay. Uh, for, we have 35 soup kitchens. In you, well, we had them before the war. We still have some operating. Uh, feeding 1,400 people a day. And it could be more, but we didn't have the funds to do it. I always have a hard time saying, how many workers do you have? Because our philosophy of working together is a little bit different. Um, when I started working with Hevra, the guy who founded it, who was Polish, by the way, it was founded in Poland, not America. Uh, he said, uh, you don't work for me, you work with me. And that deeply affected me. And it, it, it infected the entire work because we work together, we're co-workers. We don't do a hierarchy of this one's over that one and you have to obey this one. You don't want to do something, you don't do it. But if you want to help in the project, you can. Uh, and, and frankly, most of us want to help. We want to be involved and we want to do as much as we can. So how many workers do we have? I'd say none. How many people are we working with? Hundreds. We are uh, a network and we use networking to accomplish more. Because if you have to reinvent the wheel every time you do something, um, it, it's a waste of, of resources. And resources 
aren't always that great. So we can accomplish more by cooperating with others. Uh, we have uh, people we cooperate with in Holland, uh, in Germany, in England, uh, in uh, Switzerland, and in Poland. And uh, we have other people that we're helping throughout Ukraine uh, and Moldova. Uh, so we're act actually able to accomplish a great deal um, by working together. Uh, we, we can just simply do more, and, and that matters. It's, it's a, a better use of funds. Uh, we, we can help and reach more people. So Hefra does not put its name on everything we do because it's not that important to. It's mainly what we're doing, uh, not our label that's really important. Uh, we worked with a Jewish organization that was operating uh, in Odessa and Kiev, and they were working with 35 Jewish orphans that at the start of the war, they wanted to get them out. Uh, and they needed funds to get them out of Ukraine uh, into uh, another country nearby and then fly them to Israel. Uh, and uh, I received a phone call and they asked if we could help. The next day we wired out $10,000 uh, and all of them made it. All of them got out. Uh, and uh, it just made us feel really good that we get to participate in this cool stuff and mm. stuff that really makes a life and death difference for people. Mm. Uh, I mean, normally you go about your, your week, you don't get to do that. I mean, uh, I love Florida where I live, but you know, I don't, I don't save lives in Florida every day. Um, maybe by staying off the road, I'm saving life. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> But but when we're doing this work, it's like this is why God put us on the planet to do something that truly represents God's values and truly makes a difference. Uh, but we recently started uh, working in Grusia in in uh, Georgia uh, in the Caucasus Mountains. Uh, there are groups of Jewish people there. Uh, called Gorsky Jews. Uh, they're mountain Jews. Some of their ancestors have been there from the time of the Babylonian exile. Whoa. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's really quite unique. Uh, and uh, we've been helping them. We had a project we did that was kind of interesting. Uh, we called it the Chicken Project. Uh, one of our guys had his own house and he wanted to build chicken a chicken house which would be like chicken coops i guess i'm originally from new york and i really only know from going to the supermarket for a chicken uh but but he, they were raising chickens and they got eggs which they distributed to jewish people uh and uh they uh they also butchered some chickens for meat so people were getting meat and eggs. Uh, and and the, the good part is we could operate it for chicken feed. Um, it, it wasn't that, you know, expensive. But then uh, we had to close it. Uh, and apparently the reason was, I didn't know this, chickens smell. They do. And, and the neighbors were complaining. Mm. So they sold off some of the chickens. They butchered some chickens and gave away the meat to people. They gave away the eggs to people. Now they're raising mushrooms and, and very expensive mushrooms. And so the money they get from it, they're using to buy food for the people we're helping. Mm. So we're trying to do some self-sufficient uh, things. I wouldn't call that a soup kitchen, but it's definitely a clever work. Yeah, definitely. Well, just as a side note, because you are from New York, if you ever really want to get a good olfactory experience of a chicken house, you can come and visit me in Georgia. I can drive you down the interstate. You can sell them about 30 miles away. 
So mm-hmm. just in case, I want to put that offer out there for you. Uh, I appreciate that, but uh, I think I'll pass. Okay. Well, I, I, to not, I want to get ask a very important question, though, given what all of the work that Hevera is doing. How, how do people support? I mean, how, what inf- info can we give people? How do they do it? What's the best way? Obviously, right now is a pretty important time yeah. to be supporting the work. In general, people can go on our website. Uh, the website is www.mychevra.org, mychevra.org. And uh, it, it gives you several ways to contribute. Uh, it also gives you an address if you want to mail a check-in. Uh, but I can tell you the majority of what people give goes there. It gets there. And it does the job people are intending. Um, but that helps a great deal. Uh, it would help if people gave regularly like on a monthly basis, they could do an automatic uh, checking account thing. I'm not the finance person, so I'm not the person to ask, but I can only point you to the website. But we're able to do a lot of good with it. Excellent. My Hevra. Myhevra.org. You have to you have to teach your keyboard to say Hevra, but you know you can do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the that's the C H, not the K H. Uh, it's pronounced it's pronounced K H, but it's spelled C H. And I wanted to have it just Hevra.org, but apparently there's a dating, a Jewish dating oh, of course, group that yeah. has uh, that. Right. Well, that's that's just- so, so we're my we're we're my Hevra. Got it. Well. Yeah, at the end of uh, at the end of every uh, interview here on Messiah Podcast, we like to have a rapid fire round with a few questions we do not give to the guest in advance. We ask that they uh, uh, answer off the top of their head, and all we can promise is that the stakes are low. But this is what the people want to know. You are uh, Dr. Michael Schiffman, and you are offered your choice of a classic Ukrainian food. You can pick vareniki or borscht. Which one are you going for? Vereniki. Nice. This it's not even a contest. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be for me either. For those uh, for those who are not familiar with Ukrainian food, vereniki is sort of like a pierogi. Um, and my wife loves those. She's got some uh, some Eastern European ancestry. The best ones are potato and onion. Oh, potato and onion. I'll write that down. Delicious. Um, yeah, it sounds good. I'm I haven't actually eaten yet today. I'm going to have to go find myself some something like that. Um, second question: Those who follow you on social media know that once in a while. You allow yourself the luxury of a cigar, but uh, what they may not know is what's your preferred country of origin for a good stogie? Well, it would be Cuba, Cuban cigar. That would have been my assumption, right? But I don't have a budget for it. I heard there's a there's a meaning meaning no uh, offense by this that I recently learned there's a holy trinity of cigar company uh, countries which are Nicaragua, Honduras, or Dominican Republic. Yes, that's true. But Cuba still? Cuba still? Well, let me say this. Uh, I've had some Dominican, some Honduran. Uh, they, they are just as good, and some are better than some Cuban cigars. They are owned by the same companies that were operating in Cuba. Uh, they, uh, some of them are just as good. I think the phenomenon of Cuban cigars is more, you know, a question of forbidden fruit. Right. You know, the government says you can't have it, so you naturally mm. you have to have it. It makes sense. If they, right, right. You right. know, if they wanted to put them out of business, they should, you know, make them available everywhere. Right. Then people go, what's the big deal? Yeah, yeah. Make a put, sell them at 7 Eleven. Yeah. Oh, that would be, that would be, <laughs> that that is disgusting. Okay. <laughs> All right. Next question. You're about the same uh, distance from Miami and Tampa as I am from Detroit and Chicago. I know where I'm going on my uh, when I need to go to the big city. But which between Miami and Tampa, which one do you vibe with more? That that's okay. First of all, if I'm going for cigars, Tampa. Really. Uh, I have a lot of friends there. Uh, and I get together with them. Uh, also, uh, 
Tampa uh, has some Jewish restaurants. The food is very good. Hmm. Uh, but if I'm going strictly for cuisine, uh, I would go to, to Miami. Right on. Yeah. I mean, Miami has cigar places too, but uh, Tampa is like uh, the capital of America for cigars. Really? Did not know that. Yeah. That's good to know. We'll, we'll make a note of it. And finally, we asked this question to everybody, but what's your favorite variety of apple to dip in honey on Rosh Hashanah? Macintosh. Macintosh. You know, I just talked to someone last night. Macintosh was, was her favorite as well. That's interesting. So we've, we've, got, we've got a great selection of apple suggestions from our guests if you've been paying attention to the podcast. Well, given given all that we've learned, I, I it is incumbent upon me to share this. This we we mentioned the sheep and the goats, but just hearing about the work that uh, Dr. Schiffman and Hevra and you know the hands of God and all this, I want to read. Then the King will say to those on his right, "Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat." I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? And the king, I'm skipping down a bit, and the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. And I think that is what is actively happening through Hevra in Ukraine right now. And uh, I pray that everyone listening uh, can take a little bit of what Dr. Schiffman shared and we can grow together. So thanks for being here. We really appreciate you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for listening to Messiah Podcast. That website again for Hevra is myhevra.org. We encourage you to give whatever you can to help those in need in the former Soviet Union in Ukraine. Thanks for listening. We have plenty of great interviews and content still to come. So subscribe, like, uh, comment, give us five stars on your favorite podcast aggregator. And we hope to see you next time here on Messiah Podcast. Shalom. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. This podcast is an extension of Messiah Magazine, available at messiahmagazine.org. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review along with a five-star rating wherever you're listening now. Today's podcast was hosted by myself, Jacob Franzak, along with Damian Eisner. Our executive producer is Boaz Michael, and the editor-in-chief is Daniel Lancaster. This episode was directed and edited by Jeremy Schoenwald. Original music was written and performed by Joshua Aaron. The show notes for Messiah Podcast were edited by Candy Bishop and are available at messiahpodcast.org. If you are interested in learning more about the Bible from a Messianic Jewish perspective, check out Torah Club, which is an international network of small study groups who meet weekly to study the Bible together from a Messianic Jewish perspective. To start a club or join a club, go to TorahClub.org. Until next time, Shalom. Let his word cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea Let his love cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea